You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 489 of the podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 26th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the election next week, but hopefully more than just who's running and what are they saying and what are the polls looking like. More importantly, what are the issues and really as a guiding light, what are our principles, what is true and what is good, and how should that translate into how we vote. But starting us off, I want to tell you, if you didn't know, that America only has 25 days of diesel supply left. According to reporting by Ben Zeisloft, October 24th at the Daily Wire, Quote, the United States has less than one month's supply of diesel fuel, according to data from the Energy Information Administration, EIA. This is, as Ben Zeisloft's reporting points out, the lowest level since 2008. And by one metric, the four-week average of distillates supplied, demand is the highest it's been since 2007. Is it just me or... Does President Biden seem to only have a few responses he likes to cycle through? One, tell gas stations to artificially lower their prices and criticize oil companies for making money right now. Two, ask foreign countries like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela to produce more to bring down prices, thereby proving, (laughs) let's do note, that he does understand the way supply and demand work in relation to costs. Three, release barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, a, I think, dangerous strategy given how close we are to potentially a war with Russia and China, unless we're going to just give them Ukraine and Taiwan. But four is pushing electric vehicles and renewable energy. My question with regards to the pushing of electric vehicles and renewables is if these are so plentiful and cost-effective, going back to supply and demand, if they're so plentiful and so cost-effective, why do they need so much promotion from Democrats? Why do they need so much protection from Democrats? Shouldn't they be the clear winner, the clear choice for consumers? But of course, they're not cost-effective and they're not plentiful. And these two things are closely related because supply and demand is an incontrovertible law which you must reckon with even if you artificially keep prices down through various means, eventually you're going to have to face the facts that you only have so much supply and eventually what you'll have is shortages of some things and an overabundance of other things. If you produce due to central planning what people don't want or need, you're going to have stockpiles that have nowhere to go. If you artificially suppress the supply of things that people do want and need, you're going to have shortages and you're going to 
have prices go up unless you artificially keep them down, in which case you'll just be plumb out of things. If you keep the prices down and people do want to need those things, keep the prices down, keep the supplies low and get in the way of companies producing those things that people want to need in a competitive way, you'll just plumb run out. And what do you find when you go to the store? In many places, you find empty shelves or a limited supply or rising prices. All of these things are related. They are not coincidental. They're not random. They are the result of flouting the laws of economics, just like we flout the laws of biology and the laws of God, more to the point. But another thing that stood out to me, I was talking in yesterday's episode about the California governor's race and the gubernatorial debate Lauren and I watched on Epic TV Sunday night. Brian Dahl, the Republican candidate, is proposing lowering the gas taxes in California to bring down the cost of fuel at the pump. And one of probably the most frustrating moments in the debate that we watched between Brian Dahl and Gavin Newsom, current Democrat governor of California, was when Newsom and the moderators both dogpiled on Brian Dahl in reaction to his talking about lowering the tax on fuel by asking how he was going to guarantee lowering taxes wouldn't just result in gas stations raising their prices by that much. And this is a rather rich question for several reasons. One of them being that EV tax credits have led to electric vehicle manufacturers raising their prices in 2023, announcing that they were going to raise their prices in 2023 right after the Biden administration announced what the federal tax credits would be for electric vehicles. It's a rich question. And I suppose, to be fair, gas stations could just raise their prices by however much you lower the taxes. But one big difference between electric vehicle manufacturers and gas stations is, again, going back to supply and demand. How many gas stations are there in the state of California versus how many electric vehicle manufacturers are there in the U.S. market? That's a big difference. And I did appreciate Dahl mentioning this. He didn't have a lot of time because the moderators quickly changed the subject in an obvious bid to protect Newsom from having to talk some sense or having to be challenged or losing, more to the point, the election. Dahl pointed out that neighboring states to California have significantly lower average fuel prices compared with California. And it's worth noting that in looking this up, in doing my research, according to AAA, and I think these numbers are outdated, but who can keep up with fuel prices here lately or the prices of anything lately? California's average for regular, according to their chart, which I think is outdated, was $5.67, cents, 67.5 uh, right now, or here in the year 2022. Whenever they took the data, that's what it was. Compare that on the same chart from AAA to Oregon at $5.03 rounding up, or Nevada at $5.03 rounding up, or Washington State at $4.97, or New Mexico 
at $3.62. Or Colorado, which is not far. Why else do we keep getting so many people from California who move here? Colorado at $3.58 a gallon. Or Utah at $4.19 a gallon. Idaho at $4.35. This is to say fuel prices are lower in literally every other state in the U.S., including Alaska and Hawaii. And if anybody would have an excuse for having high fuel prices, it would be those states because of how remote they are. But this is also to say fuel prices could be significantly cheaper in California, except for taxes. Reporting by CBS 8 San Diego on October 7th of this year indicates taxes and fees in California account for $2.50 more per gallon in the Golden State California's average, per their reporting from just a few weeks ago, is $6.39 per gallon, compared with, brace yourself, the national average of $3.89. According to CBS 8 San Diego, taxes and fees, fees are just another way of taxing, taxes and fees account for $2.50 of what consumers are paying, what residents, what visitors are paying at the gas pump. But moving on, in other news, I think enough about that. It's supply and demand. It's the economy, stupid, as Ronald Reagan once famously said in relation to his predecessor, Jimmy Carter, who uh, current President Joe Biden seems to be in competition with for doing the most damage to the United States in the modern era uh, for, I guess. Moving on, there's a clip I want to play for you that Harris Rigby shared two days ago at notthebee.com. The title of this uh, link or entry or post or what have you is Perfect. This focus group absolutely dismantled MSNBC and the radical left's J6 narrative. Take a listen. This is pretty delicious. I think you'll enjoy it. Here is that focus group on MSNBC being asked what they think about January 6th. Mastriano was at the insurrection and he was photographed breaching one of the restricted areas. Is that okay? Which area? Because I saw a video where Capitol officers were taking away barriers and unlocking doors doors. for people. So, I mean, I... They opened the gates. So it shouldn't be disqualifying for an elected official if they participated in January 6th? He didn't didn't strike anybody. He didn't hurt anybody. And the only one that died was a protester there, not a Capitol police officer. An unarmed female veteran. That's the only one that died. That's the only one who died. A police officer did die. No. It was a stroke. Attack. That's not. That's, that's not, not on site. Caused by that, that's because right. he shouldn't have been a police officer. It was one woman. So, what do you him. make though overall of January sixth? I mean, it was watching that footage. It was pretty disturbing. I mean, there were people throwing excrement at the walls, and it was our, you know, it's the Capitol. That it looked a lot true. like Antifa's actions. Yeah, it looked a lot. Of, 
except on a much smaller scale, it looked the same as the Black Lives Matter riots. That's it's what I saw the similarities to be. Minneapolis burns. Kenosha burns. But so it's okay just because, just because one side that you no, disagree with? I'm it's saying okay Antifa for, infiltrated. No, it's good for one, it's good for the other. Anybody I don't who see harmed anybody, way. anybody who caused property destruction, that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, but if you're there making side. your voice heard at the right. people's house, no less, yeah. that, I, that's, again, it's a fundamental constitutional right of an American citizen. And people should not be being held political prisoner uh, because of it. For misdemeanors. That's I mean, East Germany. That's East Germany. Tactics. Yeah, that's what's scary. It was an actual fiery but mostly peaceful protest. And the other ones that were the opposite. Was the protest legitimate our, in your our eyes? administration, because... I feel like, is using it as their Reichstag fire. Yeah. That's exactly what they're using it as. Mm -hmm. Do you think that President Trump could have quelled the violence that day? Not him. Personally. I don't think no. so, no. I don't think so. It started while he was still speaking. I was actually there. I, I, I was there to, to see what I thought was going to be the last time I ever saw Trump a little dying. So did he tell everybody to go and, and start rioting? No. I didn't think so. No, and it actually, um, I, I, I stayed for the whole speech, like, a ton of people did. Mm -hmm. And then we all headed to the Capitol because he said, let's go to the Capitol and, and peacefully, let, peacefully let our voices keyword. be heard. And we get to the Capitol. We're like, what the hell is going on? Because it had already happened. I'm pretty sure I saw Democratic operatives instigating people to oh, cross totally. barriers. even know what i could add to that that's <laughs> uh it's beautiful it's beautiful by the way <clears throat> in case you forgot supposedly it was a landslide for joseph r biden who uh, according to 270towin.com is said to have won 306 electoral votes to donald j trump's 232 in case you forgot uh actually too that Reminds me of something Brian Dahl did say that was uh, it, it was probably his best moment and not because it was the most substantive point he could have made, but because it showed the most chutzpah compared with Gavin Newsom, who was just attack, 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 attack. And uh, both Newsom and the moderators in the California gubernatorial debate didn't seem to know what to do with what he had said. But they asked this gotcha question very, very early on. The moderators did as to who won the 2020 election. And Brian Dahl is just like, what? What's your, why, why are you asking this question? You're asking who, who won, who, who the president is? Well, yeah, Joe Biden, I, I think Joe Biden won, but I'm not so sure always that he knows that he won. And then there's just the silence that descends on <laughs> both moderators and Gavin Newsom. Like, what? <laughs> and they even asked. They're like, what, what do you mean? He's like, well, I'm not sure he knows that he's president most days, actually. And then they caught on, right? <clears throat> they were a little slow on the uptick. I think they were trying to pretend to be uh, more surprised than they actually were. I think they just weren't prepared for that kind of an answer. Uh, that was the biggest thing. So then they're covering 
their lack of preparation and their disbelief that he would say that with, uh, you know, pretending not to understand what he just said. But they're like, oh, that's, you know, disrespectful. And how could you say that? He's the president of the United States. I, you know, you shouldn't say things like that. It's like, well, you shouldn't elect somebody who is going to say to John Fetterman's wife, you're going to make a great lady in the Senate. She's not running for U.S. Senate. Fetterman is, right? Unless he's just so used to uh, now his wife telling him, you know, how to make it through the gardens without getting lost and uh, telling him, come on now, you know, like he is uh, dementiatic. Maybe he's so used to that. He's just assuming, uh, given Fetterman's mental state, that it's going to be Fetterman's wife who really is uh, the senator from Pennsylvania. But alas, I digress. In other news, an exclusive from Gateway Pundit with the headline, Exclusive Katie Hobbs threatens to sue Cochise County if supervisors vote to hand count midterm election ballots. Uh, By Jordan Conradson, this reporting from October 22nd, 2022. I would draw your attention to county supervisor replies. We will have George Soros for governor if we elect her. Now, that <clears throat> that's a concerning statement to make if you're going to hand count the ballots. But it's also uh, even more concerning to my way of thinking if Arizona's Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs, is threatening legal action against county supervisors if they do a 100% audit on the results. Now, it's important to note here that they're still planning on counting the first round by machine. But Cochise County supervisors are considering an audit of the machine count. That's all this is. My question is, for those who are tired of all this talk of election fraud, why, right? Why would Katie Hobbs take legal action to prevent hand counting of ballots? What's the justification? What's the legal justification for saying you you can't do that. No, you can't do that. Don't do that. I'm not quite sure. Somebody's going to have to explain that to me because I just don't quite get it, frankly. But moving on from Arizona to New York State, Lee Zeldin debated the uh, current New York governor who basically took office after former Governor Cuomo was removed for uh, lots of Me Too-style ousting of him. Uh, I think very conveniently, given how he had mishandled and mismanaged and uh, scandalized New York's uh, state-level response to COVID, putting people who were uh, COVID positive in nursing homes, almost as if he was trying to infect nursing home residents with COVID to spread panic, uh, almost like tying foxes' tails together and then lighting them on fire before releasing them into uh, fields of standing grain for your enemies. Almost one of those things. The scandal looked so bad for Democrats in the state of New York and nationwide that I think Democrats uh, basically used the Me Too moment as a way of uh, getting him out of there. But Kathy Hochul stepped in and is now governor, and she's the Democrat 
candidate for New York governor. And she's running against Lee Zeldin. And they had a debate. And uh, one of the things I want to key in on here is a clip where she is asked by one of the debate moderators which restrictions, if any, she supports on the question of abortion. Here's what she had to say. Take a listen. Is there any restrictions around abortion that you would approve of? What we have in New York State is simply a codification of Roe v. Wade. So what has been out there since the Supreme Court, before the Supreme Court, undid 50 years of progress for women so women like myself and my daughter would have a right. My granddaughter does not have the same right that I had to make a determination in concert with myself or my doctor if it's after the six month. So we have the same restrictions. And anyone who says otherwise is just incorrect. So if you were listening closely, to quote Lee Zeldin uh, in response to the moderator, who had asked the question, you asked a specific question, whether or not my opponent supports any restriction on abortion. Of course, she doesn't answer it. That's not a coincidence. And she didn't forget. She didn't forget. Uh, if you were listening closely for what restrictions she believes are appropriate on abortion, uh, the answer is apparently none. Uh, no restrictions on abortion. But there was another great moment. And this one, I won't for the sake of time. Uh, play the clip, but there was a great exchange with regards to crime, which has skyrocketed in New York City, especially Lee Zeldin, and I quote, had this to say, Kathy Hochul believes that the only crimes being committed are crimes with guns. You have people who are afraid to be pushed in front of oncoming subway cars. They're being stabbed, beaten to death on the street with hammers. This is a big deal. He continues, Talk to the Asian American community and how it's impacted them with the loss of lives Jewish people targeted with raw, violent anti-Semitism on our streets. It just happened yet again. We need to be talking about all these other crimes, but instead, Kathy Hochul is busy patting herself on the back. Job well done. No, actually. Right now, there should be a special session to overhaul cashless bail and these other pro-criminal laws with zero tolerance. And that's absolutely right. It's, It's not rocket surgery that if you take away decent people's ability to defend themselves from uh, folks who are mentally ill or hyped up on drugs or just completely immoral and ungodly and maybe even dealing with uh, mental illness or uh, demon possession or what have you. If you take away the ability for decent people to defend their own lives or defend the lives of other innocent folks that are around them, it really doesn't matter if you are getting guns you know, off the street, so to speak, so much as whose guns are you getting off of the street? And also, it, did you actually stop violent crime? Well, if you're going to say we're going to catch and release uh, criminals for violent actions, and then they go out and they murder somebody else, and they rape somebody else, and they do some other heinous thing, they assault other people the same day, it's not rocket science that that is going to have the effect that New York City is seeing, that the state of New York is seeing. It's not all that complicated, really. The same holds true in California and New York and Illinois. These places are seeing crime spiral out of control. And these big cities that are run by Democrats and big states that are run by Democrats have serious 
crime problems and what's being done about it. What's being done about it by Democrats is you define down degeneracy. You move the goalposts. What's being done about it by Republicans is law enforcement, crime and punishment. You do the crime and you're either going to do the time or if you're assaulting a police officer, if you're assaulting innocent people, you may be met with force up to and including deadly force. And that's an entirely moral and good and Christian way to respond to criminals by the state. Romans 13 very clearly says that we are to be subject to the governing authorities because the governing authorities are minister of God to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil, a kind of common grace for us, like God sending his reign on the just and the unjust, is law enforcement. Whether you're a Christian or not, you still benefit greatly in this life from not being robbed, beaten, raped, murdered. Those are all um, upsides for you to not have those be part of your day or your week or your month. Also, not living in constant fear of those things. Definitely an upside. If you want criminals to have a blank check with which to uh, victimize you, and for there to be no cops to call, because they don't believe in law enforcement, I guess, on the Democrat side, even though they'll deny, no, 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 we weren't for defunding the police. Yes, you were. They're for decreasing or eliminating law enforcement, but they're also for taking away your ability to get a firearm with which to defend yourself or your loved one. Uh, Basically, that is to say you are a fish in a barrel and criminals just have to decide they want to victimize you. Uh, I guess we all need to just invest in martial arts training and workout equipment, but far better, far, far better would be vote Republican. And let's actually stick up for what the Constitution says. The Second Amendment to the United States Constitution is a very common sense statement. Not the source of your rights, but a recognition of your rights. Democrats don't recognize your right except where it relates to paying your taxes and free love, so-called, which is to say sexual immorality and mutilating children and indoctrinating them in gender theory and critical race theory and uh, not owning firearms. Those are are your rights under Democrats to pay more for less, to own nothing and be happy, to abort your child or else mutilate them and uh, to be sexually immoral and to censor your neighbor, I guess, except it's not really you. It's not really you that is censoring your neighbor. It's you that's being censored, whether you realize it or not. But alas, I digress. In other election news, Fetterman called out for a tax on fracking, can't respond when asked why he changed views. Here is, again, some reporting from the Daily Wire. This one from yesterday. The debate was Tuesday night, and Daily Wire News put out this piece. Fetterman called out for a tax on fracking, can't respond when asked why he changed his views. There's a video clip I'm going to play, and uh, it, there's not really much to speak of as far as Mehmet Oz, the Republican candidate for Senate, 
he doesn't really get a chance to uh, jump on what it is that Fetterman was saying. He's kind of cut off uh, because I guess that's how a debate works is that the moderator does all the work uh, these days, especially when you have a candidate like Fetterman. But take a listen. Here is this back and forth about fracking, especially listen to what's being said in relation to gas prices, fuel prices going into winter, what it's going to cost to heat your home and uh, keep the electricity on and charge your electric vehicles. If you have electric vehicles, take a listen. Here's Fetterman and Oz in the debate from last night. Who have made two conflicting statements regarding fracking. In a 2018 interview, you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. I never have. But earlier this month, you told an interviewer, quote, I support fracking. I support the energy independence that we should have here in the United States. So, Mr. Fetterman, please explain your changing position. 60 seconds. Uh, I've, I've always supported fracking. And I always believe that independence with our energy is, is critical. We can't be held, you know, you know, ransom to somebody like Russia. You know, I've always believed that energy independence is critical, and I've always believed that, and I do support fracking. I've never taken any money from their, their, their industry, but I support how critical it is that we produce our own energy and create energy independence. I must correct the record. Uh, well, he uh, just a second, Mr. Oz. I do want to clarify something. You're saying tonight that you support fracking, that you've always supported fracking, but there is that 2018 interview that you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. So how do you square the two? Oh, uh, I, I, I do support fracking and I don't, I don't, I support fracking and I stand and I do support fracking. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Fetterman. A moment of silence for John Fetterman's integrity. (laughs) You can't have it both ways unless you just flat um, don't remember. You completely spaced on having said you don't support it at all at all. And now you're saying, oh yeah, I've always supported it. I do support it. I, I don't, I don't, I, I support fracking. I, I stand and I do support fracking. What in the world are you even saying? Like, this is just, it's sad. It's it's quite frankly sad. And I suppose it's of a piece with Joe Biden winning the 2020 election in a landslide. Somebody doesn't have to be mentally competent to serve. Uh, That's the example that's being set for us. You can be not okay upstairs and Democrats will still vote for you if you're a Democrat or they'll cheat for you. But I didn't say that. It's interesting to note with regards to John Fetterman that he is apparently Schrodinger's cat on the question of fracking. And so also, you know, going back to the clip of Kathy Hochul running for New York state governor, she's asked this very simple, basic question. That's not a debate. When you're asked a simple, basic question, like, are you for any restrictions on abortion? Are there any restrictions on abortion that you would approve of? And the answer is basically to dance around the question. And I know both sides do this and I hate it. I hate, hate, hate it. Have a position, take your position, state your position, defend your position, but don't change the subject and don't, They don't make the emotional appeal about your daughter 
not being able to get an abortion anymore, or your granddaughter, you know, she's not going to be able to get an abortion anymore. Do you realize what you're saying? You're going to make an emotional appeal to your daughter who was born being able to get an abortion, but then you're also going to make an appeal to your granddaughter who was born being able to get an abortion. Apparently, you don't want a great granddaughter, I guess. That's the takeaway. And also, you don't support any restrictions on abortion. Uh, according to polling by Real Clear Politics, Kathy Hochul leads Lee Zeldin by six points, but the race is getting tighter as New York approaches Election Day. So also with regards to Pennsylvania and the Senate race between Fetterman and Oz, Fetterman actually leads Oz by two points, supposedly, according to polling by RCP. But there too, the race is getting tighter. If you look at the graph tracking the over under over time, the race is definitely getting tighter as Pennsylvania approaches election day. But it is interesting. If I look at the uh, RCP for Arizona, again, with regards to Katie Hobbs, current Arizona attorney general, she is trailing Carrie Lake, the RCP average of polls over the course of the past month has Lake up by 1.4 points. That's the average. But if you drill down and you actually look at what polls are being averaged here, there's an OH predictive insights that has Lake ahead by three points between October 4th and October 6th. There's a Fox 10 insider advantage poll from October 11th that has her ahead by three points. Then there are two polls, one by KPHO TV high ground from the 12th to the 13th that has Hobbs up by one point, another by Federalist and Susquehanna from the 14th to the 18th that has Hobbs up by one point. But then there's a Daily Wire Trafalgar poll that has Kerry Lake up by three points as well. And all that averages out to a really, really close race. And yet, nevertheless, uh, basically, the average in the polling, if I look at the trend, it's fairly consistent that Lake is ahead of Hobbs by a couple of points. She's pretty consistently ahead there. And I think she's going to win. I think she should win. She seems like she would be a fine governor. Uh, More is the pity that we don't have better polling and more honest debate moderators and a more honest media and that it is so often just a gotcha game. More is the pity. But what did I say at the top of this episode? It's not just who is running and it's not just the issues in order for us to make sense of who is running and what the issues are and what our positions should be on the issues and not just getting taken for, you know, who shows up better in photographs, who has a better hair and makeup crew, who is better at thinking on their feet or pulling these kinds of rhetorical tricks in the middle of a debate, deflection, avoidance, ad hominem, ad populum, who is better at the non sequitur and the red herring? No, no. We need to know what our principles are. What is right and what is wrong? What is good? What is evil? What is true? What is false? That is the really, really important thing. And that brings us to our final topic in relation to 
the election next week, I want to talk about evangelicals and Catholics together a bit more. And this is something my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, was asking me about this 1994 statement that really kickstarted the group or was their opening salvo together. Uh, the title of the statement is The Christian Mission in the Third Millennium. And there's a lot of signatories to it. It was published 1994. Uh, original signatories, evangelical signatories, not a great many. Chuck Colson, you might be familiar with, affiliated with Prison Fellowship and Southern Baptist Convention. Richard Land with uh, Christian Life Commission and also the SBC. J.I. Packer, Canadian Christian theologian in the Low Church Anglican and Reformed traditions. They signed it. And then for Catholics, there were more. So there was just three evangelical signatories, but there were six Catholic signatories. Avery Dulles, Society of Jesus and Fordham University. Also, Francis George, Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate Diocese of Yakima, Washington. Monsignor William Murphy, Chancellor of the Archdiocese of Boston. Richard John Newhouse, former Lutheran minister and Institute on Religion and Democracy. Archbishop Francis Stafford, Archdiocese of Denver. George Weigel, Ethics and Public Policy Center. So these are the signatories, but there were also several who endorsed besides those who signed, including William J. Abraham with Perkins School of Theology, Elizabeth Actemeyer, Union Theological Seminary in Virginia, Bill Bright with Campus Crusade for Christ, as it was formerly known. Now it's called uh, Crew because lots of people are triggered by the Crusades. Then there was Bishop William Frey, Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry, Oz Guinness, who you may be familiar with from my having talked about his books uh, often on this podcast, Richard Mao, Fuller Theological Seminary, Mark Knoll, Wheaton College, another one I've talked about often, uh, a progressive historian, uh, church historian especially, Thomas C. Oden with Drew University, again, G.I. Packer. I, I suppose it makes sense that he signed it and endorses it. Pat Robertson with Regent University and the 700 Club. And then for Catholics, there were William Bentley Ball, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, Augustine de Noya with Dominican House of Studies, Mary Ann Glendon, professor at Harvard Law, Peter Kreeft, professor at Boston College. So, so lots, right? Lots of people with uh, pretty influential positions early on, either signed or endorsed this. And what's the problem, right? What's the issue with regards to this statement? Well, for one, the pro or the sales pitch or the reason it's endorsed or signed on to is that there is a felt need for Protestants and Catholics, and I quote Wikipedia here, to deliver a common witness to the modern world at the eve of the third millennium. Now we're into it, but on the front end, before we got into it, they felt like we need to have a common witness to the modern world. Their statement draws heavily from the theology of the New Testament, according to Wikipedia, and the Trinitarian doctrine of the Nicene Creed. It seeks to encourage what is known as spiritual ecumenism and day-to-day -day ecumenism. Some of the criticism, 
again, scrolling down on Wikipedia. And I quote, many evangelicals, while appreciating the goal of social agreement in the ECT document, are still opposed to the theological wording of the document. Theologians such as John Ankerberg, D. James Kennedy, John F. MacArthur, and R.C. Sproul published concern about it being a step in exactly the wrong direction and going too far in claiming theological agreement. They emphasize that sola fide is a fundamental distinctive of evangelical theology, which fundamentally divides evangelicals and Catholics theologically, as Rome condemned sola fide at the Council of Trent and has never lifted that condemnation or anathema. Further, they argue that it attacks the very foundation of absolute truth by concessions to relativism and postmodernism, belying its profession of joint commitment to the gospel, thus rendering the gospel moot. They claim it falls lockstep into line with our culture's minimalist approach to truth issues. And I would say that's valid. I My concern is very much along the lines of the criticism from James Kennedy, John MacArthur, and R.C. Sproul that there is a watering down of the importance of our distinctives in the interest of presenting a unified front. And insofar as we might just be papering over important debates, important separations that really haven't been resolved, we need to think about what kind of a testimony that is. If there's a felt need for a unified common witness to the modern world, we really ought to grapple with those things that we have disagreed about with regards to the Christian faith, with regards to faith, actually, and its relationship to grace and works and what was Jesus actually accomplishing on the cross and so many other things, right? So many other things that in their details make a big difference and actually do make sense of why we organize ourselves, govern ourselves separately in denominations. But this opens this statement. I've got it pulled up here at firstthings.com. The statement opens, first paragraph, as the second millennium draws to a close, the Christian mission in world history faces a moment of daunting opportunity and responsibility. If in the merciful and mysterious ways of God, the second coming is delayed, we enter upon a third millennium that could be, in the words of John Paul II, a springtime of world missions. Continuing on, second paragraph, as Christ is one, so the Christian mission is one, that one mission can be and should be advanced in diverse ways. Legitimate diversity, however, should not be confused with existing divisions between Christians that obscure the one Christ and hinder that one mission. There is a necessary connection between the visible unity of Christians and the mission of the one Christ. We together pray for the fulfillment of the prayer of our Lord. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, so also may they be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, John 17. We together, evangelicals and Catholics, confess our sins against the unity that Christ intends for all his disciples. Okay, so full stop, right? This mindset, this attitude, on one level, is commendable, and we should support it. But when you get into the details, again, Getting into the details is where it gets dicey. And going back to the criticism, which was leveled by the likes of MacArthur and Sproul and Kennedy, you're actually undermining what it is that you say you're trying to be uh, for in the way of truth claims. So they say in the second paragraph, legitimate diversity should not be confused with existing divisions between Christians. And All I can say to that is, if you say so, 
if you say so. That's an opinion. That's a judgment call. Sure. But what are the alternatives? Especially when most of the signatories for the original statement were Catholics. And there is a lot of pushback from Protestants who are familiar with the details of the history of the Reformation and the history of the church more broadly. There were men who died, who were martyred, who were put to death. They were tortured, and then they were publicly executed because they could not in good conscience affirm or be silent about what Rome was teaching, what Rome was insisting on for very political reasons. And yes, political can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Political doesn't have to be a dirty word, but Politics should be downstream of truth. And that's the big point I'm trying to make with regards to this upcoming election. Politics should be downstream of truth, not the other way around. The truth cannot be downstream of politics. If truth is downstream of politics, then essentially we're saying peace, peace when there is no peace. And I think that's also where you get very confused and impossible to follow Leadership from too many. Take, for instance, Brian Dahl running for California governor as the Republican candidate. When asked his position, very much like Kathy Hochul or John Fetterman, with regards to being pro life or with regards to oil and gas or with regards to other things, there's a lot of wishy washiness which is clearly motivated and driven by this overzealous desire to not offend the other side by saying something that they're going to disagree with. And I'm not even talking about insults. I'm not even talking about trading barbs and maligning anybody's character. I'm just talking about taking a position and saying what you are actually for consistently. There's an aversion to being principled, which makes us extraordinarily vulnerable to fast talkers and con artists like Gavin Newsom or like Joe Biden or like John Fetterman or like Kathy Hochul. And yes, I would say they're all con artists. Look at the destruction, look at the suffering, look at the poverty induced by their folly, by their wickedness, by their promotion of folly and wickedness. The only thing that supports it is fast-talking coalitions that try to box out anybody who disagrees with them, even when their policies are very, very dangerous, even when not in a theoretical sense, in a very practical, demonstrable, see-for-yourself way, they are not working and they are causing havoc and destruction and chaos and even death. We say, ah, yes, but we want to be unified. We don't want to be divisive. And when the rubber meets the road, the kind of engagement politically and theologically that's going to come from watering down the truth and dismissing as illegitimate diversity of views is exactly what we've seen, which is you have kids on college campuses rioting, threatening violence, defacing university property, trying to harm anybody who disagrees with them, trying to shout them down, screaming at them, abusing them, because someone is going to come to the university and say things that they disagree with or make an argument that is opposed to what they were brainwashed into believing in the public schools or via pop culture and the mainstream media. Theologically, 
it does not work for us to just be this big tent ecumenical thing where we put unity ahead of truth. It does not work. And I'm not saying that in a theoretical sense. This is not an ivory tower assessment. This is not the platosphere that I'm just kind of floating up in and looking down on earth from. No, boots on the ground, lived experience. (laughs) It does not work. So one of the things I didn't realize I was contending with back in high school when I was part of a ecumenical, really, Bible study, one-way Bible studies, one-way youth group in Hillsboro, Ohio, one of the things I didn't realize I was up against was ecumenicism. We had Catholics, we had Methodists, we had Lutherans, we had Baptists, we had Pentecostals, we had non-denominational kids, we had Church of Christ kids, we had kids who hadn't grown up in the church at all at all. And I distinctly remember our discussion board, we had a forum that was dedicated to just our Bible study, one-way forums. We had a youth house. We had Bible study every week. We had outings. We would go do things. We would hang out at the youth house after school on weekdays. We'd have lockouts. We'd have lock-ins. We'd play Halo, eat pizza, talk about Jesus, talk about the Bible. One of the things that I encountered more than once in attempted discussions with my Catholic friends, and by the way, half my wedding party, just to be clear, half my wedding party was Roman Catholics, including, but not limited to, my only ex-girlfriend, by the way. But the discussions I tried to have with my Roman Catholic friends about the history of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and statements made by the Catholic Church condemning, anathematizing Protestants, uh, never repealing that, and then yet wanting to say, all right, we all need to be unified. It's a very conspicuous thing that consistently those discussions were shut down by our youth pastor at the time who was concerned that that would be divisive. And it's like, well, wait a second. We're not actually getting reconciliation here if you're just going to say, well, we're not going to talk about it, right? You're not actually getting unity. You're getting an appearance of unity. It's like saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. You're saying unity, unity, when there isn't actually any unity. And I would refer back to Carl Truman's short book, three chapters long, if memory serves, The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. I note, even though he writes for First Things Magazine, he did not sign the most recent statement, the November statement from evangelicals and Catholics together, Fear God, Honor the Emperor, He is not a signatory to it. And I've heard his discussions with Peter Lightheart in which he pushes back on this idea that we can just declare, um, you know, from his perspective, declare the Reformation to be over, more or less. You know, it would be one thing if unity with the Roman Catholic Church, theologically, were going to be on the terms of the Reformation, the, the concerns and complaints of men like Luther and Calvin and Knox. It would be one thing if the Roman Catholic Church were going to say, you know what, guys, we've had a long time to think about it. Five centuries, we've had a long time to think about it, and we realized you're right, right? That would be one thing. But that's not what's happening. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not the direction it's going, right? So what you have instead is actually an undermining of the importance of these truth claims 
an undervaluing, which is actually upstream, of liberalism and the rise of postmodernism and the post-truth situation that we find ourselves in. We're going to talk about values. We're not going to talk about good and evil, true and false. We're not going to talk about God's law and the natural law because we can't agree actually about what the Evangelion is. And we can't even discuss it actually to come to an agreement because that's divisive. No, no, no. That's not divisive. That's recognizing that's recognizing that a division exists actually, which is not the same thing. You know, imagine a scenario in which you're running for political office against somebody with wildly different principles, opposite conclusions about what is best for your city, your state, your nation. And you're told on the front end that you're going to debate, but you're not allowed to disagree. You're not allowed to contradict or challenge. You're not allowed to significantly, substantially differ with your opponent. Voters don't want that, supposedly. Supposedly. What they really want is for you guys to agree on everything. Well, in that case, what are you actually uh, doing? What are you running for? Just let the other guy have it. Say, all right, I, I give up. Let's all have unity. I won't even run. In the interest of unity, we're not even going to debate this. We're not even going to discuss this. You know, I was talking with a gentleman I know here in the area several months ago, and he was talking about his approach to keeping the peace in the home. And I kid you not, his attitude is that he and his wife just don't talk about things. Period. Period. You can't argue. You can't disagree. You can't get upset with each other if you just don't talk about things. And I'm sad to say that is where we find ourselves society-wise. That's where we find ourselves in terms of what ails the American church, the American family, the American political process, American culture. We have renounced the use of reason. And that cuts both ways. On the one hand, we say we don't want to be reasoned with because we agree, basically, at root with Michel Foucault and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. We agree that truth claims are just a will to power. Essentially, there is no such thing as truth. There's your truth. There's my truth. So we don't want to be reasoned with because that's just you trying to control me. If you try and reason me into agreeing with you on the question of abortion, for instance, well, you're just trying to enslave me. You're trying to bring about the handmaiden's tale. We can't debate about oil and gas prices. We have to wait until we completely run out of fuel and nobody can go anywhere and China and Russia and Iran and North Korea invade. We have to wait for that, I guess. We have to wait until we have no firearms and no bullets and it's illegal to own them before we can reason with each other about the right to self-defense. You have to wait until the criminals are pushing everybody in front of trains and wreaking havoc like the Dark Knight Rises. And basically, the Democrats' plan is the Dark Knight Rises. It's the League of Shadows. Let's just <laughs> unleash everybody. I'm convinced that's what COVID was, basically. That's what the Black Lives Matter riots were. That's what Antifa riots were. It was the League of Shadows. Let's just make everybody go nuts and kill each other off. And then in the chaos, we'll say, ah, see, there's your justice. There's your social justice. That's evil. That's evil. It's wrong. It's wicked. And as Christians, we have to have an apologetic 
for these things. We have to know what our principles are. We have to know what we're about. We have to be able to articulate that and reason that out for ourselves. Also, make reasoned arguments and teach one another to be reasonable. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Be open to reason. Let everyone be reasonable and open to reason out loud, publicly, and cross-examine one another with gentleness and respect. We do that, we might just work our way out of, navigate our way out of the mess that we find ourselves in. But I got to run. That's all I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.